My next guest is Rudy Ronda. He's the co-founder of the Anawa platform with the intention of amplifying the indigenous wisdom and making this deep wisdom available to the Western world. He's also is the co-founder of the Boa Foundation. The mission is to work in alliance with indigenous communities to preserve and protect sacred land, culture, and ancient wisdom. And if you're interested in following up, go to anywat.co, A-N-I-W-A.co, and theboafoundation.org. Welcome, Rudy. Thanks for being here. Grand Rising CK, thank you for having me. Very appreciate this opportunity to talk a little bit about um, my mission here. Mm. So I want to bring in the moment what I said to myself, I want to talk to this guy. So there I was in the middle of a ceremony and I was really struggling at that moment, right? And then there you were playing this beautiful drum. And what I experienced was your inner joy. And you are a master drummer. And I went up to you afterwards to really ask you about your story of how you bring forth your 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 inner joy and then share with the world and and with the circle and really activate all of us to help us move through whatever challenges we have through this inner joy. And then you share um, that you you weren't always this way, that you didn't always have joy within to amplify. Why don't you tell that story of how you move from you know the person that you were to the person that <coughs> amplifies this inner joy today? Wonderful. Thank you. Um, so the Cliff Notes version, uh, because this story can go on for quite a while, is that, um, you know, I was a college graduate working for a Fortune 100 corporation and, um, you know, striving to get ahead, as we say, uh, promotions and uh, raises, and then, of course, to acquire more material things. And, um, you know, I always uh, had joy within me. You know, people enjoyed being around me socially. However, you know, I really needed certain situations, like uh, situations where there was alcohol and or other substances for that joy to come out of me. Um, and then, of course, upon reflection, you know, in some ways, this joy was contrived. Uh, because it had to be manufactured through uh, substance use, you know. And, um, and so I was on this journey then of um, what I call chasing celebration. I was chasing this joy. You know, I need to, needed to manufacture situations, social situations, party situations, um, in order for me to conjure this joy. And, um, you know, I started to see once I hit uh, 30 that this was a bit of a loop that I could travel to New York, Los Angeles, Miami, Las Vegas, you know, Vail, Lake Tahoe, it didn't matter. And I could have 50 of the most, uh, you know, funny characters surrounding me and be staying in, you know, luxurious um, uh, homes and have wonderful music 
surrounding us, you know, with bands and DJs and then have all the right, um, you know, party favors, if you will. And yet uh, it was like a DVD. Who remembers DVDs? It was like a DVD skipping the same scene over and over again. Groundhog's Day. Day. Pardon? Groundhog's Day. Groundhog's Day. Yeah, Bill Murray, that movie. It's kind of like that. Exactly. Exactly. And um, and uh, I, I started to see, like, wow, I am really chasing this celebration. It is not innate within me. But I didn't know, you know, anything about spirituality uh, that much. I didn't know anything about plant medicine. And so, um, you know, I didn't really know where to look. But by the grace of God, I had a friend who said, you know, bring me to, you need to come to one of my spiritual journeys down to Colombia. I went, this opened the door. And, um, you know, now the joy that I source is the raw, unadulterated joy that lives inside of each and every one of us. And it doesn't need to be chased. I don't chase anything anymore. You know, I don't chase girls. I don't chase money. I don't chase success. I don't chase joy. There's nothing to chase. You know, that is outside the present moment. And um, and so now the joy comes in these moments of uh, creation, these moments of collaboration, these moments of humanity, these moments of spirit, you know, um, these moments of community, um, these moments of wonder, you know, joy. Once you can peel back sort of the layers of the maladapted programming that, you know, so many, many of us have uh, endured you know, Western society, you know, you can source great joy just hugging a tree. And I'm not kidding. Just hugging a tree, watching the sunset, the sunrise, watching kids play that aren't your relations. Maybe you just, you don't know them. You're in a park and you see two kids running around. Wow. Remember when we were kids and we used to do that? Like, So it becomes more accessible, you know, and this is what I found is that joy really is a, uh, is a choice and that's you know why in these ceremonies when the music comes on we do what we do because there are people who are in this place of uh, perhaps suffering you know perhaps an exploration of uh, shadow perhaps uncovering some trauma and what we're doing up at there at the altar with the instruments and with the singing is um, I like to call it we're, we're giving the space a bath enjoy so you're ensconced in joy and then it becomes a choice for the participant okay i have all these realizations i've checked in with some shadow aspects of my personality am i going to sit here and wallow in this suffering because that's the choice you know um or am i going to open my eyes and see the beauty around me Listen to the beauty, feel the vibration of beauty that is emanating from, you know, the musicians. When I look and I see the people who are up dancing, like, look how beautiful the movement of their body. And that's where it becomes a choice. And because these ceremonies are really a divine school, you know, it's a divine school of life. This then becomes a choice um, that you can make more easily outside of the ceremony. So, for instance... Um, you know, it's not to be um, irrationally positive all the time. 
that's not what I'm saying. Yeah. So, you, pa pa so pause yeah. on that for a moment. I want to, you know, I want to, that what you just share is, is such a beautiful um, articulation of this. So I, I, recently I heard Satguru, uh, Indian spiritual guru said this, and I thought it was so poignant, which uh, echoes exactly the sentiment that you just share. He said, instead of pursuing happiness, make your life an expression of your inner joy. And I thought that was very profound because when you pursue happiness, happiness is outside of you. You're grasping for it, right? As you said, you're chasing the high. And and the sign of an addiction is something that you get less and less the more and more you chase, right? So that's 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 what that is. But if instead, if you make your life an expression of inner joy, that implies implicitly you already have it. And now you're just giving it away as a gift to others around you. So what you that story that you share was uh, beautifully said. Thank you so much. Well, I, I like the way Sadhguru says it. <laughs> uh, thank you for sharing that because that is exactly right. There's no destination. Everyone's running around this life thinking that the, they have to be somewhere and that in the present moment, they're late for arriving there, you know? But there is no place to be. You know, the, the journey is the destination. And, uh, and the destination is the journey. Um, and we all have this inner joy within us. You know, we just, it depends how much we bury it. Uh, so we learn to dust it off and to use it. And uh, like I said, this is, Something that I see in the spiritual community is, um, you know, we call it like the love and light crew. Everything's love and light. They just want to ignore suffering and ignore shadow. But that's also not the way, you know. Fear is real. Anger is real. Sadness, depression, all these things are real. And it's re okay to feel these things. But, not but, I should say, and <laughs> we have a choice then what we do with these emotions and um what you know i encourage people to do is to feel them to breathe into them to breathe through them acknowledge them then release them and go back to gratitude and joy for having uh confronted something that's quite um off-putting quite scary uh like a big fear or a, a big trauma or sadness you know and uh, for that, there's reason to be joyful. So get up then and dance. Yes, every moment we always have a choice. As uh, Viktor Frankl said, between stimulants and response, there's a space. And in that space lies in our growth and freedom. Uh, you had mentioned a divine school of life. So let's double click on that. And during our specific ceremony, I was thinking to myself, you know, my brand is the noble warrior. That's what I'm about. And in this particular time, we are, the world is worrying about wars. And I'm not pro-war, I'm actually pro-peace. So the meditative question I was thinking about is, who am I warring against? <laughs> and the answer that came from our particular session is, I'm warring against oblivion lack of clarity, confusion, chaos. That's the war that I'm declaring from within. 
so that I can be more conscientious, so I can be more clear the way that I behave, the way I think, the way I talk, and so forth. And then the next question is this, something that I think about. Then if that's the case, why would I ingest conscientiously an agent, ayahuasca specifically, that put me in a state of confusion? And then that's the thing I want to double click on. For those who never had the medicine experience per se, this may be a thing that they think about, right? Oh, how is this, how is this going to help you to be more clear? Even though intentionally, this is temporarily rather put you in the state of, you know, swirl of things that shows up. So someone who uh, is evangelist, who, 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 who is in this work deeply, if you can double click on that and then unpack that a little bit for those who may not have the medicine experience yet think about this way. So just to uh, reframe frame the question back to you so I understand it clearly, you're asking mm -hmm. me why someone would um, have this experience with ayahuasca if perhaps it can, during the course of the ceremony, leave you in a confused or befuddled state. That's right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so this is uh, a really good question and for me it's quite a simple answer mm -hmm. and uh, I will start by sharing uh, a little bit of a parable to give context mm -hmm. <clears throat> we have um, our head and we have our heart these are two um, centers of, of activity and function within our human experience and body. And they say that um, the head and the heart, you know, are connected, of course. And um, that it is, uh, they form a machete. Everyone knows what a machete looks like, probably. Got a big, sharp blade and then a long handle. They say that the heart is the handle. And the head is the blade. And uh, when you use a machete, if no one's ever used a machete, I spend a lot of time in the forest, I've used one quite often, you know, you hold the handle and you hack whatever you need to hack, you know, but you point it with the handle. Mm. This is the heart. The heart is the handle. The heart is that which leads the blade. The mind is sharp, it is the blade, but it is not led blade first. It is led by the handle, the heart. Mm. In our society, we have somehow arrived uh, at the inverse of this. And we're clutching the blade as the handle and walking around wondering why our hand is bleeding. Mm because we have it backwards. We need to be led by the heart. So when people go to these ceremonies and they start to arrive in a place of confusion, the medicine is just showing them that they are already confused. And it's not a judgment. We're all confused in some way, you know? Nobody's not confused in some way. This is the society in which we live in. You know, there's just basic principles of life, you know, what many indigenous call the natural law, which we have not grasped in our society. So we are confused. 
We are a confused society. The medicine is showing us that. And in these moments, the coaching that we give people, okay, put your hand on your heart. Breathe into your heart. What does your heart tell you? Can you tune into what your heart tells you? Is your heart confused? Sometimes the heart is confused, you know, around especially romantic love, you know. But um, when it comes to things of that the, the brain is, you know, processing uh, or stuck on, you know, the heart usually has a lot of clarity in it. You know, if the person can't get out of their head, they can't get into their heart, then there's tools like Agua Florida, that little cologne, you know, that's not used because it smells good. It's used to wash away these stagnant thoughts. You know, there's tobacco. Uh, you can smoke a tobacco and not cigarettes. You know, you don't inhale. Smoke sacred tobacco, wash it away. And then, of course, you know, if you're really, really stuck, there's always the you know, the page, which is what they call the, the shaman. They don't have a word for shaman in Brazil. It's page, it's healer. Um, the page can come and put his hands on your head and, oosh, you know, give you what we call a blow. But um, I really appreciate this question because, uh, you know, confusion, I feel like, is one of the... It's one of the, um, the pitfalls of our, of our Western society. You know, there's so much information coming through and there's so much different information coming through. And um, we're not taught basic principles uh, that allow us to remain grounded. You know, someone that has a connection to sacred water, has a connection to earth, that understands where the food comes from. They're usually a grounded person. They're not so confused. Why is there that correlation? <laughs> you know, people say, oh, but they're simple. Simple and not confused, you know? So, yeah, I hope that answers the question. Thank you for that. No, I appreciate it for sure. The way I think of it is um, Noble Warrior. So we use the dojo as a metaphor a lot. And to me, it's very similar. The, 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 the ceremonies are the dojos for the spirit, for the heart. And we go in and these agents of clarity surface and amplifies what's already within us. So mm -hmm. it's, it's not something that it produces. It's rather it just amplifies what's already there. So therefore, it makes it more apparent so that we can um, process it if we choose to, right, and make a different choice. And just like the gym, we go to the gym, we exercise our musculature, and get to a place of failure as a way to strengthen our muscles to more gain more stamina gain more strength similarly we get to look at the all the issues that we have in our heart in our mind and we get to uh, process them so then, then when we come out of these ceremonies these temporal states of confusion befuddlement etc we come up more clear that's the way i think about these practices I couldn't agree more. Spiritual dojo, indeed. And um, I will say, though, what I've learned is that uh, we're not actually fighting anything. I had, um, I, I have a warrior spirit within me. This has uh, been told to me by many of the indigenous elders we work with. And uh, my main teacher, a man named Benki Piapo, 
Um, he looked at me some years ago. We were we were at my mother's house actually doing a, an event at my mother's house fundraising. And he looks at me and he says, and he says to the group too, or a bunch of people around, him, says, Rudy has a warrior spirit. He doesn't know how to use it. <laughs> <laughs> in my face. Okay, okay. Say more about that. Say more about that. What's a warrior oh. spirit, and then how do you properly use it? Well, I will. I will tell you. Uh, my initial response was to be totally defensive because I was like, "I've done vision quest. I've done pilgrimages to Viracocha. I've done three month diets in the rainforest. I have this organization. I'm fighting for the earth. Poor, you know." One second, maybe not even one second later, I realized he was right. Because I was a warrior for the earth. You know, I was doing my best, but I didn't know how to use it because I was at war. I was at war with evil, so to speak, with these dark forces that the forces behind, you know, uh, inequality, racism, rape, child sex trafficking, you know, all these terrible things that exist on a planet. I was at war with those forces. And so I said, okay, Banky, how, you know, well, what can I do? He says, you need to come and diet with me. And so I, along with my mission partner, Vivian, who's the other co-founder, we are the only two Westerners to be allowed into this Ashaninka School of Wisdom. Uh, a major honor, which I still don't quite comprehend now, but it has filled a great need because it was there that I began to learn that to be a warrior, you can't have anger in your spirit. You need to be in total equilibrium, total balance, so that when you are confronted with Satan himself, you're not in a reactionary state. You are in a state of balance because the war is not direct confrontation. It's more like Tai Chi, you know, it's moving around these things while staying grounded. And, um, you know, I, during this time, the first three months that I spent there with Benki, and I had spent one month with him before. Um, learning, but this was like the school, his school, the three months. It's three months, we drink ayahuasca every single night for 90 days. Every morning, we get maybe two hours of sleep. We get up, we go plant trees, we go build things. No uh, red meat, no sugar, no alcohol, no caffeine, no, you know, obviously tobacco or anything like this. It's like we're eating just plain fish, Maybe some green banana or plantain, rice, like this. And maybe two meals a day. So how can you do this for 90 days? You drink medicine every single night. You don't sleep. You work all day in the hot rainforest sun. Well, because what he's teaching us is how to pull energy from the spiritual world, from the nature around us. So during this time, I'm thinking a lot about, you know, these dark forces that really have infected our planet, you know, that are behind war, that are behind drug addiction and spousal abuse, just all these terrible things, you know, well, but how, how do we not fight them? And so at this point I called um, uh, a doggone elder, 
from over there in Africa, Burkina Faso, the Dogon, they were never colonized, their line of wisdom uninterrupted, like some of the wisest people I've ever encountered. And I called the son of the prophet, a man named Naba Irata. I said, Naba, you know, but what about this like black magic, you know, this evil? And he says, in our culture, we don't even have a word for black magic. We don't even really have a word for evil, really. He says, there's just two paths. There's the path of Wusser, which is the path of living eternally through creation. And what that is, that is uh, you live eternally through the things you create, through the things you put into this world, through your children and your grandchildren and so forth and so on. You also then believe in reincarnation, that your spirit will come down and have a physical life again. This is the path of love, compassion, humility, service, union. And there's the path of set, the left-hand side. Path of set is living eternally through self-preservation, meaning you think you live eternally through greed, control, power, material. But that path, of course, is an illusion because you don't live eternally. You only try to. And you look at our society. You look at the how uh, our major institutions, like where they are leading us. Are they leading us on the path of Wusser, the path of living eternally through creation? Or are they leading us on the path of Set, living eternally through self-preservation? Look at governments, you look at corporations, they're largely on the path of set. So what I've realized is that to be a warrior is not to fight these things. To be a warrior is to be on this more narrow path of Wasser, this narrow path of living eternally through creation and being um, immovable from this path, being uncompromising, not being... Uh, persuaded by any temptation or by any fear. Because in this world, to remain on this very narrow path, it takes strength, takes courage, takes persistence, takes resilience. And there are a lot of forces that want to knock us off this. And so this, for me, is how I learned, began to learn, because it's I'm forever a humble student. So I want to emphasize that one thing I know for sure is that I don't know much in this world. So, but beginning to learn how to be a real warrior, and not a warrior that wants to fight everyone, you know, that wants to go punch the devil in the face and, you know, a child sex trafficker is going to, you know, knock their teeth out. No, that's perpetuating the same violence that they're engaging in. That is not a warrior. It's not a warrior of peace, you know? And so um, this is what I've begun to understand about embodying the warrior spirit that uh, I have within me. I love that. Uh, It actually reminds me of a story of a samurai Samurai going after an evil lord at the time. And finally, he caught the evil lord in a corner. 
and the evil lord started to spit at him, cussed at him. And at the very last moment, he really got him angry. And then, then the samurai then sheathed his sword and turned back. And, and then someone else asked him, like, you had him in the corner. Why didn't you just finish the job that you were him to do? And the samurai said, I sheathed my sword because he got me angry and I didn't want to finish the vision with that anger. He mm -hmm. lost equanimity at the time. His anger got a control of him. So he turned around exactly as you said, right? Not being pulled and controlled by this anger, this antagonism towards the quote unquote evils of the world. Rather, you want to go out and create. And that also, I, I was smiling during your story because that's what Noble Warrior is all about. We're going from the first mountain of achievement, right? That self-preservation, the egoic pursuit of the self to the second mountain of purpose and legacy, right? Through creation, through compassion and union. How do we actually create a world that is so freaking inspiring and just, it just pulls people towards that. So beautiful uh, articulation. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's amazing. And I really appreciate the samurai story as well, because this tells me how connected ancient cultures were, you know, so often we have this where you have uh, the same parable, but with different, uh, you know, sort of dressing on it and from different continents. And so, you know, that's one thing that I really see and, and why I believe in ancient wisdom so much. It's not to eschew or ignore modern technology and what the West has achieved, but there is a lot of wisdom that has been here for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and has not changed. And it hasn't changed because it's always relevant, you know, and we've buried that. And that's another mission of the Aniwa uh, platform and community. So, okay. So, so let's double click on that. Cause I was going to ask you this perfect segue. Cause I was going to ask you that question because you're obviously a very capable man. You have a, a store, you have a, a power of words. You're very articulate. You're very poetic. You can pull in different things and achieve. I think you shared your story with me, how you spent eight to 10 hours with the bank telling stories about companies. And now you're shifting that superpower to preserve ancient wisdom, right? So out of a billion other things you could be doing, why ancient wisdom? Why, why is such a topic important for you? You know, this is, this is great. You know, my mouth, my mouth was my, was my, uh, stock and trade not just in, in business, but socially. I'd use it to dominate spaces. I'd use it to make people laugh. I'd use it to attract girls. I'd use it to make friends. I'd use it to, to alpha, you know, oftentimes, uh, because I could talk a mile a minute, I could tell stories and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, and then of course you get into sales, I could sell water to a well, fire in hell, you know, well, making money, always be closing ABC, that whole nonsense. And, um, <laughs> And then by the grace of God, I came to medicine. And interesting when I came to medicine, because I was really confused at that time. I, what? I'm doing everything right in life. I have this gorgeous loft in Chicago, beautiful girlfriend, probably going to marry her friends, belong to the right clubs, great family, dress well, got all the things. Like, why am I miserable? 
I thought I'm doing everything right. And it was that moment I started to read a book that I had read several, several times in my life, numerous times actually. It's called Lame Deer Seeker of Visions, a book written by a Lakota medicine man named John Fire Lame Deer. And I had first read this book when I was 15. My literature class in my, uh, I went to a prep school, we had a literature class. And for one year, we read only, this is back in 1995, we read only what we call Turtle Island, First Nation, uh, indigenous of, of United States authors. And I remember, you know, reading about Sundance and Sweat Lodge and Chanupa and, you know, reading this book and especially this one and just being like, wow, I want to go sit in a sweat lodge. I want to go eat peyote, you know? And it was talking about a relationship to nature and to the animals and to the wind and to everything. Wow, fascinating. So I always kept this book with me and give it his gift. For some reason, I decided to read this book again. And it made sense because I, right after finishing it again, I went to medicine. And, um, without telling you about the whole first experience, uh, just say that I got a lot of weight off my shoulders. I got a, received a lot of clarity. And then when it was done after 10 days, 12 days, whatever it was, um, back in the States, I'm like, okay, now what? Well, I want to, I want more. So I go to sweat lodges. Now I go to, you know, do stuff with the natives of, of the land and I, which I grew up in, you know, not South America here in, Turtle Island, as, as we say, United States. Uh, and so there, Sweat Lodge and peyote, and, and, you know, I kept feeling better and better, you know, learning more, learning how to pray, you know, like, uh, and so then it became, okay, well, I want to share this. I want to, you know, like, uh, I want all my friends, my beautiful friends who are also in a similar place to where I was, I want them to have this opportunity. You know, like, we'll change the world. And so that's when I started to pray. Oh, you know, help me out, God. Help me out, great spirit. What can I do? And my mantra was divine purpose. You know, that was like the mantra every day, multiple times throughout the day. Just be like, please show me my divine purpose. Whatever it is, just know that I'll be happy. Divine purpose. And, um, I left, I had been living in LA prior to the first medicine experience and I left and uh, moved in with a friend in uh, the foothills of Tucson, Arizona, a friend who had brought me on that first retreat. And he had a fire pit in his backyard and I'd every night go out and make a fire. And I'd sit there until the coals were all out under the stars and the desert of Tucson, Arizona. And I'd just pray, you know? And then it came to me, okay, you need to start a foundation because there's lots of foundations working with the digits, but they're not necessarily doing it right. Let's say they're bad. They're not doing it right. What you need to do is just go build an alliance. Friendship, you make friends. Easy for me. Something I've always been very good at. Make friends, have this alliance based on friendship, trust, brotherhood. Um, and then you just ask them what their needs are because a chief knows what's good for his village. I don't know. I can think, oh yeah, we're gonna give you this, we'll give you that, but the chief knows what's good for his bill. Okay, what else, what else, tell me more. 
and then you want to start uh, like um, like a community where you make content um, to amplify this message of the indigenous, to help amplify their voices, because not everyone can go, you know, fly to South America for a retreat. Not everyone can even go to like a, you know, a two day weekend, you know, retreat. But most people got have access to the internet, you know. So let's start getting this uh, on the internet, so that this can really reach all the people whose hearts are ready to receive this message. All the people whose minds are confused in this time that may need that may find clarity in a two hour talk by one of these leaders. So and I said, okay, well, I don't actually know. <laughs> I don't actually know any of these leaders that I feel comfortable starting an alliance with. I've met some and they've been good, but I don't, you know, that's when God said, Oh, you'll, you'll meet them in Brazil. But I said, well, I've never been to Brazil. It's like, well, you're going to go. Okay. And you also meet your partner in this there. It's like, really? I have going to have a partner in this. Okay. And then sure enough, six months later, um, in this place called Oto Paraíso, which translates to High Paradise in Portuguese. It's kind of like the Sedona of uh, Brazil, but totally different landscape. There's thousands of waterfalls all in this little tiny area. And there's uh, its, it's ground is um, just straight crystal quartz, quartz crystal. So it's like the whole place sits on a bed of quartz crystal. So it's a pretty magical spot. And uh, there was this conference, Condor Eagle there. And uh, I'm sitting there about to start a ceremony and this Brazilian woman comes up to me, we have a conversation. And uh, she tells me, I tell her that I have this dream of creating this foundation and making a film and amplifying indigenous voices. Just, I don't know why I shared this with her. And she's like, that's my dream too. I was like, yeah, sure. She's like, no, really? So yeah, and I want to point, I said, I want to use that guy for the film. And I point to this man, Nino Mapai de Mata, you know, out of all the featured, uh, you know, shamans during this conference, this was the one guy who was like, I was like, he's the guy, you know? She looks at him, she's like, oh, I've been talking to him. He has a dream that people come to his village and make a film about his culture. I'm like, okay. And like, it was like, I got struck by a bolt of lightning in that moment. And, um, and so that's where it started, you know, with this motivation. But then as I've gone on, I'm starting to see the importance of it. Because, um, you know, as Western society so often does, we co-opt um, culture, you know. We appropriate culture. And I see so many people saying that, you know, taking like an indigenous teaching and then twisting it, sometimes overtly, sometimes subtly, to fit their narrative. That's not okay. The teaching is as the teaching is, and it's been that way since the beginning of time because that is the teaching. The Western mind loves to twist it. To so, so, so before you start talking about that, let me let me actually summarize. This is my style, by the way. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is you were praying for a divine purpose throughout your awakening process, right? You, you receive benefits. Now you're thinking about what's my divine purpose. You meditated for a long time. You get some kind of 
a revelation, download, what insights, whatever you call this. And then you just trusted that process to go to Brazil, to go into Ego Condor conference. And, and you also externalize your dream to people around you. Is that an accurate recap of what you share? That is an accurate recap. And uh, like I say, hashtag trust the process. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I want to double click on that a little bit, right? Because you made it sound like you just trusted the process. And from all the interviews that I've done, it's not always that easy because, you know, there's internal tension. Should I, shouldn't I? The, the process of, you know, surrendering to the message per se, because there's many, <sighs> many voices, right? Narratives that's happening concurrently, not just one. So how did you decide or to surrender to this particular message versus all other competing voices in your head? Um, you know, I had, um, it was, it was quite easy for me because I had exhausted every other avenue in the pursuit of inner peace mm. and, um, fulfillment. And so by the time I arrived to, you know, my, my awakening to spirituality, my remembrance of spirituality, I was so tired of pushing in these other directions that I was like, just take me, you know, I had found that place of total surrender. Cause I was like, I, 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 I've tried everything, you know, at this point, um, by the time I finally drank medicine, uh, I was 32 years old, 32 years old, you know? So it's like a decade of adult life. Um, and I just had enough, you know? So for me, um, it was easier not to say that I became perfect overnight, you know, but it was just like, I've been trying this one method or going down this one path for so long. And I actually feel more disenfranchised and more disconnected. I do one 10 day retreat and it's like 10 years of therapy. Mm. There's something there, you know, there's mm. something there. So don't argue just for the first time in your life, instead of talking all the time, shut up and listen. <laughs> okay. So since you have a gift of articulation of the inner subjective experience, and some people, they may not have that awareness events. Can you paint us a picture of the before and after? So paint us a picture of the inner chaos and paint us a picture of this inner peace that you talked about. Because words are, you know, people say these words and then people are up to their own imagination. Since you have this gift of articulation, paint us a picture of the symptoms of inner chaos and the symptoms of inner peace. The symptoms of inner chaos are only feeling free in those moments of um, conjured ecstasy, like within a party uh, setting. And then come Monday morning, feeling in prison and begrudgingly going to whatever occupation uh, that I had in order to make enough money to finance um, a fantasy and a fantasy that no matter how many times I lived the actual fantasy that it was never 
I was never arriving to the place that I thought I would within this fantasy. And so sometimes you'd sit there and I'd fantasize during the week, fantasize, oh, I can't wait till we're in Vail and many different cities and, you know, we're going to do all the drugs and, you know, we're going to have like, a, you know, a DJ play our own house party, you know, in the mansion we rented or fantasize about sex, you know, um, really want to have a threesome, you know, we're going to get two girls at the same time and then it happens and nothing, nothing changes, you know? And, um, and then also feeling these uh, unwritten social contracts, you know, it's like having to be someone that's not authentic of a feeling of escape, you know, and it was easy to escape because when you, you have hundreds of friends that all just want to escape too, then socializing was simply escapism. Escapism into the fantasy realm. That, like I said before, I'll say it again, even in living the fantasy, uh, not getting any closer to freedom, liberation, or true happiness or fulfillment. So this is before. Um, and... Um, the symptoms of after, which takes work, takes courage, takes time. You don't go to a retreat in two weeks and solve all your problems. You can get a huge jump, but it's just, it doesn't work that way. You know, most of our indigenous elders say five years, five years of healing, of like concentrated focus on healing, before you can really start then to study like uh, spirituality. And, um, and so giving yourself that time and the patience, again, because there's no destination, it's just a journey. You don't have to be someone, you know, again, you know, just see this often in our society. People go do one week in Peru, they go do like a, two-week meditation course in Bali, and it's like, well, now I'm the teacher. No, you're not. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know? And it's like, that's the, the same pitfalls of the mind that um, you're trying to heal from. It's trying to be something that you're not because you think that's the only way you'll be accepted. And so, you know, where I am now is I know myself. I can wear a tuxedo and go to a fancy wedding with my family. I can wear the same board shorts for a week straight in the rainforest and not shave. I'm the same person. I can, you know, dress up like a hipster and go to some event like this. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because I am who I am. I know who I am. I don't wear masks anymore. You will hear the same thing from me as if I was talking to Joe Biden right now. You know, if I was talking to my six-year-old um you know, little cousin, though I might, you know, use different language, the message is the same. And, um, and that is the symptom. You know, what they say is that when we take drugs, when we get really drunk, when we have random sex, when we experience trauma, our spirit fractures, mm. it splinters. Mm. And healing, this is why you can't do it in just two weeks. Healing is recovering all those splinters of our spirit 
in bringing them back into our body. Because once your spirit is aligned to your body, once it's back in your body, you know who you are. You become unmovable. You become very clear. And so, you know, I've, I've, I'm on like year 11 now. So I've done five years of healing. I've done five years of, of studying. This is the now, it's just now that I'm feeling comfortable to teach. You look at my Instagram, I'm not like, you know, writing teachings like, a, like I'm some sort of teacher because I didn't feel, I didn't feel to, you know, and I'd write maybe inspirational posts or share about experiences, but not from the place of teacher. It's only now that I'm feeling comfortable teaching because I have put actually in that time and I know now I can feel it. My spirit is fully in my body. I can stay up for three days straight and not be tired and work and give and give because my spirit is in my body. This is the symptom of someone, and it's not to say you're ever fully healed, but someone has brought their spirit back into their body. You are clear, you know? You're not, um, not to say perfect, you know? It's like uh, we're always making mistakes and learning from them, always. But um, when you have put in the time to bring your spirit back in your body, it's really easy to feel that joy that you saw me, you know, just on playing a drum. It's really easy to feel gratitude for simple things. It's really easy um, to stay strong and courageous in the face of, um, of, of, of tyranny, you know, of, um, of uh, a trigger, you know. So these are the symptoms. And, um, you know, and it's like that. You're in right relations with your, all the people in your life. You know, you're in right relations with all the elements. You're in right relations with the spiritual world. You know, that's one thing that was also my thing. It's like if someone, if I had a problem with someone who was just like, you know, you know, it's just like, I would just like, you know, freeze them out. Think like, you know, for lack of a better term, well, that person's a douchebag, you know, talk, talk trash with my friends about this person, you know? Like, I don't need them. I got, a, I got enough friends. Who needs, you know, this guy doesn't like me. He's a jerk, you know? And, um, you know, now, like, uh, I want to make efforts to be in right relations with all people. Even if sometimes if someone has a problem with me, that's a complete projection, you know? It's like, okay, well, let's take the time to be in right relations. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing the, the contrast, the before and after. And for those who are listening, who is watching this, to me is a real contrast between being fractured and being whole, being scarce and being abundant. It's a real contrast. And then from a place of humility, now you can, you're, you're, you have a, it's really obvious for those who are watching that you know who you are. There's a solidity in the groundedness that you know who you are. When you speak, is precise, is refined, is true for you. And that's that's one of the reasons why I was compelled to, like, I got to interview Rudy. He's a cool guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there's more stories beyond the musicianship. Uh, and I'm, you know, obvious that that is very much the case. You're definitely a man on purpose. So I appreciate you sharing this. Well, thank you, my friend. Thank you, brother. I appreciate the opportunity to share. You know, like I always say, um, this is one thing that Benki, Benki Piaco, who was probably one of the more famous indigenous leaders in the world, man who uh, has 
18 assassination attempts against his life. He's only 48 years old. Why is uh, that? Actually, I'm, this is so fascinating to me. <laughs> Why assassination? That's really... So he lives in Acre, the state of Acre, Brazil, mm-hmm. which is on the border of Peru. And out there, there's factions of the government that don't want to see him alive. There are cattle farmers, soya farmers that don't like his uh, message of, you know, stopping deforestation. Don't want to see him alive. And then there are the drug cartels because they move a lot of cocaine and um, cannabis and other stuff from over the border in Peru. And he spends lots of times rehabbing the youth uh, who live in cities from uh, drug addiction, gives them purpose, gives them jobs. And so, of course, he speaks out against them as well. And so he's got several competing areas of darkness that do not want to see him breathing. And, mm. uh, you know, but he says, I don't own a gun. People have pointed guns in my face. And I said, why do you want to kill me? I'm only here for love. Mm. And he says, then no, no one ever does it. And uh, Do you feel that, because when we think about wisdom teachers, you know, those who really truly embody this deep love and compassion and, and empathy and, and, and union. And unfortunately, many of them were assassinated. Do you feel like this is the inevitable path of the, the wisdom teachers? Is there, let's see, how do I ask this question? Do you think they have to meet death? Well, like I mean, not, not, I don't want to be morbid like that, but is that, is that the, the tension? Is that the challenge of what it takes to really step into one's prominence and legacy and purpose to be at the face of the opposing force. And, and that's the risk that you take to be such a, a beacon of light. I, I think yes, because it, that, that evil and that threat of violence needs to be acknowledged, you know? And so I've even thought about this for myself, you know? Like, do I want to speak out on things in which I know I could upset some people who have guns and they're clearly not afraid to use them? But when you choose to follow your divine purpose, this is a mission. This isn't a job, not an occupation. You are on a mission from God. God wants you to fulfill this mission. So if you believe that the spiritual world will protect you, which is believing that if you are faced like Benki with someone that's got a gun in your face, that they will not pull the trigger or that if they actually pull the trigger, the gun will jam. That's like the level of faith I believe you need to have. And uh, I believe this exists. I believe that if enough of us step into this sort of faith, that governments that are dropping bombs, all of a sudden planes won't work. I really believe that. But it's not one person or a couple of people thinking like that. We need to create an army of people that have that faith, that have that connection to the spiritual world. And Mm. this is, you know, one of the, again, to loop it back to Aniwa, this is one of the things that we are, the motivations behind sharing this is to create, you know, as many people out there to help them remember this, because it's a remembrance. I'm not special. Becky's not special. You know, we all have this within us. We all have this capacity within us. It's a remembrance. But we need to, you know, unwind, untangle in order to remember 
what was given to us with the same divine spark we were born with in our spirit. Because our spirit has that remembrance, right? So this is Thaniwa gathering. And, um, you know, one thing I learned growing up in the United States, being programmed to compete, right? It's always like, I need to get better grades. We need to win the game. I need to get the girl. It's competition, competition, competition. Before I came to medicine, literally weeks before I was in Hong Kong, and I had this uh, download out of nowhere. We just had dinner and had a couple bourbons. I was smoking a cigarette in Lang Kwai Fung, and I'm just sitting there like thinking as I smoke the cigarette. And this is, you know, you don't want to compete anymore. You don't want to dominate. You don't want to win. Because if you win, that means someone loses. You don't want someone to lose. You want to collaborate. You want to co-create. Because like this, everyone wins. And I'm thinking that. I'm like, wow. And then, you know, with Banky, he always gives this message. Says, There's no competition. Why are you com competing? And I thought about that. I was like, I don't have to compete with anyone because I have a mission. How can you compete with a mission? You know? That's all I have is a mission. How can there be competition? My mission is better than yours. More important. That's absurd. Any mission that's divine is equally important. There's no hierarchy to this, you know? And really, if you're getting a mission from the divine, we're all working for the same purpose. So how can there be a hierarchy? How can my mission be more important? Or I'd be better than someone. And um, that really helped me unwind for it. And that's another thing why I feel comfortable in my spirit because it's like I don't need to compare myself to someone else. You know, that's another thing in our society. Oh, I wish I had that guy's car. Oh man, his wife is so much better than my girlfriend, you know? It's like uh that is that's insanity. Yeah. When when so I heard a phrase recently I really, really love is when you truly own I am, comparison stops. Because no because if you truly own it, the only reason why I would want to compare is if I don't own I am as the eternal expression of, uh, of God. I appreciate that. That's a nice way of putting it. Mm. You know? So let me ask you this. Eniwa, Boa Foundation, to me, they're two sides of the same coin, right? One yeah. is more giving. The other one is um, amplifying right so and you are effectively the steward of resources the bridging the indigenous cultures to the west in my mind this is this is the visual that i see um so that has awesome responsibilities because you had earlier mentioned twisting the narratives is not something that you want to do and um can you share with us a little bit about how do you amplify the narratives of these indigenous uh, elders and how do you reconcile? Maybe some of them may have different points of view, right? How do you, in a very collaborative way, amicable way, usher their narratives without colluding or inputting or superimposing your point of view? I mean, first of all, I'm just going to say that like what I found is what I said in the beginning of this podcast is that you know, the elders, the doggone elders in Africa have the same teachings as the Mamos who live high in the Sierra Nevadas of Colombia. 
separate, you know, long before Wi-Fi and internet and phones. So they're not collaborating, communicating, hey, you know, we're going to make this story about this and like this. They all have pretty much the same beliefs and teachings. Just it's different names with different stories. Um, so you don't often see any uh, conflicting points of view. Um, sometimes, like there's some cultures that worship uh, the boa constrictor, for instance, in the Amazon. And then there's neighboring cultures that would never, ever call in the spirit of the boa constrictor. They only work with birds. And this then comes down to a dialect, to a language difference. It's like the ones that don't use the spirit of the snake all speak an Arawak dialect. The ones that do speak a Pano dialect. So, but the themes, the, you know, the overarching themes, really there's no difference. You know? uh, they have the same flood stories that we have in our Bible. They have same creation stories. Again, it's just with different names. So, um, you know, what we do is we just let the elders speak. You know, that's the easiest way. And for instance, we have coming up uh, our Aniwa gathering, which uh, is an annual four-day gathering with 50 of the most, you know, renowned indigenous elders that we work with coming to just share, workshops to just share. And we don't drink ayahuasca or eat peyote or anything like that because the idea is that for us just to listen, you know, ask questions, of course, but just to sit there and listen. And it ends up being people, for people, a more powerful experience than any, you know, ceremony they've ever been to. And I understand why. Well, there's 50 elders there with all their spirit guides, with all their ancestors, with all their connections to the elements. They're all in one place, concentrated. It's like they're bringing in so much light that the whole, you know, four days is a ayahuasca journey because it's just like your shadow can't hide with this much light being poured in from all these elders. And so, um, yeah, we're doing that again here in Big Bear. Southern, it's our first time in California. The first year we did it in Ibiza. Then we did it in New York the last few years. And we decided to bring it to California uh, this year, which I'm so excited about. What is it? What is it? June 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th. Nice. Uh, tickets are actually going to be released today. Oh, awesome. Um, and, um, you know, this is really one of our, it's the crown jewel on our calendar because the elders are so excited to be with one another. You know, they're like, they greet each other as relatives. You know, even though maybe they don't speak the same language, you know, so it's really neat to see them interact and connect. And then, of course, this is, um, you know, this is uh, what we call Rainbow Warrior Boot Camp. You familiar with the Rainbow Warrior Prophecy? Why don't you go into that? You, you share that story during ceremony, but I think people who haven't heard it would love to hear it from you. Yes. Yeah, so this is what Aniwa Gathering is what it's, this event is called. This is what it was inspired by. There are several cultures throughout the world and several continents that have this prophecy about how there will be a time when the rivers are running dry, the fish are disappearing, animals, species are going extinct, and uh, humanity's at war, and you know society's crumbling, and it's just a time of great disconnect and imbalance here on Earth. 
And in this time, it'll be a group of people of all colors, races, creeds, ages who will band together in unity, harmony, love, compassion, humility, and service. Uh, and they will bring forth a new era, a new future of unprecedented abundance, peace, love, harmony. And these people will be called the Rainbow Warriors. And, you know, I read that and I was like, wow, I believe in that. Vivian was like, I believe in that. So with great humility, we based our first Aniwa gathering on this prophecy. And then the second year I started thinking, you know, we were using indigenous prophecy here, you know, to market um, a gathering. We need to be really careful because like we cannot commodify prophecy by even a little bit. That would be, you know, really disrespectful and out of alignment. But then I thought, okay, well, how does one fulfill prophecy? Well, someone needs to heed the call and fulfill it. In this case, it's many people that need to heed the call, led by indigenous elders. And then it started to dawn on me like, you know, this is an aspect. We are fulfilling prophecy, an aspect. You know, we can't do this alone, but we're making a, a wrinkle. We're inspiring others. And so, you know, you look at this war that's happening right now. You look at uh, COVID. You look at just the world. It's really, really kind of falling apart, you know. This is the time. Animals are going extinct. Rivers are polluted. We're here. So what we are doing with Aniwa is uh, in giving these indigenous elders a platform, we are recruiting more people to the idea that they can be a part of this prophecy of delivering the humanity uh, to, to, to peace. So that our children and our children's children and our children's children's children may live in an entirely different world than the one that we've um, been exposed to. And um, I believe this, you know, I believe this very strongly. I believe that our indigenous elders, you know, in their wisdom, that they can unlock this remembrance in, in, in us. And that if we remain humble and we remain to be, allow ourselves to be guided, you know, by these, by these elders, that, um, you know, we can all really come together and create the world in which we want to live in. Um, so this gathering, you know, like I has said to begin with, it is, uh, you know, it's like a rainbow warrior boot camp, training camp. It's like you can come and maybe you don't, you know, feel like, uh, like a, who is this guy really talking about this prophecy? But I'm interested. But that's it. Spend four days. Spend two days. See if the shoe fits. See if you are being called within your heart to, uh, to give, you know, to sign up. Because um, that's all it is. It's like uh, people who feel something in their heart. And they're like, okay, well, how can I help? We all have different skill sets. We can all help in a different way. And I think that's, uh, again, that's the fabric of the Rainbow Warrior prophecy. All these different people with all these different skills. So on Noble Warrior, we talk a lot about legacy and purpose. 
it's one of those themes that's just, you know, it's, it's the purpose of the Noble Warrior conversations. And one thing that I, part of the teachings or the principles is that you don't necessarily wake up with a divine download, like, oh my God, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. But you, there's threads of curiosity. So if you're curious about something, pull on that thread and allow that thread to curiosity and turn to interest, turn into a passion, then turn into ultimately a devotion and dharmic path, right? But you don't necessarily wake up the next day and ta-da, here's my divine purpose. It, it is a process. So for, for me, to be in the presence of elders uh, well, uh, basically is a concentrated place of wisdom and interests and points of views and, and and teachings so that will allow you to you know give you ample threats to pull on indeed indeed and uh, i think you put it just uh perfectly there you know it's following following a thread it's not like uh uh of total download, you know, and then it's just like, like you that. might, you might, but you know, probabilistically you follow the thread. That's, that's kind of my point of view. I leave space for people to get the entire download in, you know, 10 minutes. I welcome that. And I think, uh, following the thread is, uh, also a very good policy. <laughs> so, so we've been using words, elders, wisdom, pretty loosely. Can you go, double click on those two words? What they like, how did you select these top 50 elders, wisdom keepers? What are the mm. qualifications, the attributes, the embodiment, the presence? How did you reputation? How did you select them? Well, there's ones that we met, you know, that were just uh, divinely guided to. Um, and we met them and started working with them. And that was our base. That's what we started with. And these people saw that we did good work, that we followed through on the things we said, that we were respectful of their traditions, of their ways, that we weren't, uh, like I said, co-opting or commodifying anything, um, that we were always bringing in financial support when they needed. So they said, okay, well, we know some people you need to know, you know? And so it's been like that. And, um, you know, there's not to say all of our elders are human. I'm aware of the human side of every single one of our elders. I'm aware of their weaknesses, every single one. Things that we do not tolerate though, are, um, you know, uh, with men, uh, out of alignment behavior with women. It's the easiest way to get kicked out of Aniwa is, uh, to, um, yeah, to not be in total respect of, uh, the females that are coming here and keeping sexual energy out. Um, greed is another one. If these guys are, we're, you know, fundraising money and they're not using it exactly for what they say they are, um, and they're not using it for community projects, meaning they're using it for build themselves a house or to buy themselves a new pair of Nikes, which none of our elders do. Again, gone, you're gone, you know? And, uh, and the third one is those that, uh, you know, <laughs> these elders have respect in their villages. They're loved in their village. They're not deified at all. You take them out in the Western world, you know, just as the human 
propensity of uh, a Western society, it's like all of a sudden they're deified. If they start believing the hype that they are more than human and they develop that sort of ego, they're gone. The elders we work with, we've had to, out of all the elders that we've ever worked with, we've had to ask only uh, two to, to uh, not work with us anymore. And um, that is because, you know, really feel guided that we've attracted these people that, you know, uphold these values as best they can. Um, and um, yeah, you know, this is, it's just really important for us, especially with the, the wounding and the trauma of our society, that the elders are not perpetuating any of this wounding um, with uh, with uh, within their lives or the lives of others. What about wisdom? What's your definition of wisdom? Well, I mean, look, I had, uh, I think I told you in the, the ceremony, I had the, the, um, the opportunity to uh, do a, a diet, a three-month diet with Yawanari, who was the last remaining elder of the Yawanari people from before the time of contact. He was 106 years old. Wow. And what he would say is that the older I get, the more I know nothing. And for me, that, that's wisdom. You know, you get someone who starts acting like they know something. None of our elders act like they know something, you know. Uh, they have wisdom that was passed on to them uh, through sacrifice, through initiations. Um, and they don't act like they know more than someone. None. That's one thing I definitely, definitely really, really appreciate because you know, when I first came to this medicine and to these ways, I'm like, well, I know more than all these unaware people. Like, all well, the people are zombies, brain dead. Mm, wrong way to think about it, <laughs> you know? Wrong way to think about it. It's like uh, humility is wisdom. If the elder doesn't have humility, they don't have wisdom. Those two things are inseparable. One thing that, uh, so Noble Warrior, again, using the dojo metaphor a lot. Uh, when, a, when someone tells me they're a master, like automatically, I'm like, okay, so that's, that's a sign of how, how much of a master you're not to me personally. <laughs> but when someone approach it with humility, like black belts actually acting like a white belt still are curious to learn and, and then, you know, explore different aspects of things. To me, that's 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 an embodied teacher. So when I meet the likes of um, uh, Iskunquat, right, and and a lot of the masters that I've actually sat with, you know, yes, in ceremony they definitely know how to hold space, right? They are the you know master of ceremony, literally. And outside of it, just the level of like humility, the humanness, the the joy. There's no like I'm the rock star, the ego kind of, you know, posturing. Um, I really, really appreciate it. to me. That's the kind of teacher that I want to be with. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So Boa Foundation, Enewa gathering, super mm -hmm. important role from my perspective, making these gems of wisdom, timeless wisdom available to the Western world. And the question I have for you is, 
Let's see. Where do we go from here? In my mind, the your role is especially important because you're actually getting what it takes to communicate and collaborate well with multiple groups of people and then have them work seamlessly. And I think that skill is so timely, so is so needed in our modern time today. Can you share a little bit about what you learned to <coughs> make friends and have them collaborate and you know and build harmony in a wide, diverse range of group of people? It's mm. a really good question. <laughs> I've actually never really thought about that. It's a, it's, a, it's a unique superpower. And let me maybe while you think, like I'll give you a little context. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So I was the chief culture officer for a company of 250 people. Mm -hmm. And when I started doing this was very top down. We superimposed, right? The founders and executive team superimposed our will to the people. And one key lessons that we learned is that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our role is to be the servant leaders to provide what our people need rather than superimpose our way into the people right so and the fact that really is impressive to me is not only you work with one tribe you work with many tribes of many cultures how do you have them all you know create harmony and working together that is extraordinary so Love to hear about what you actually learned, the skills to really harmonize uh, the human differences, the, the cultural differences. Well, you know, I learned from these leaders. I'm going to their villages. You know, that's first off, you know, a lot of people always want to work with indigenous elders. But the way you earn their trust is not by meeting them on, when they're on tour in Europe or in the United States. You need to go to their home. You need to live like they live. That's how you earn trust and respect. And so I didn't actually even think about that. I just wanted to go. But there were some places where we were like some of the first Westerners to arrive there. You know, well, everyone always says they want to come. So now that I'm there, what do I do? I observe the, the chief, I observe the elders, you know, the leader. And what I see is someone that trusts the other people in the village to fulfill their role, you know? So you let the fishers men fish, you let the builders build, you let the cooks cook, you know what I mean? And uh, also then, to not be above any role. I mean, the second time I was in, the first village we ever started working with is a place that takes about eight days to arrive there from Los Angeles. Many planes, long car ride, three to five days on a boat. Their chief, Ninawapai um, Damata, we had, hadn't seen him for a while. And so we arrived, you know, at night. He said, oh, okay, tomorrow come to my house at noon and then we'll go to this very famous tree called the Sama Uma tree and we'll take hape, you know, and we'll play some music. Oh, okay, wow, exciting. 
So we go there at noon, and then he's not there. His wife, though, is, and she says, um, oh, Nino is not here. Well, where is he? He's cleaning the eco-toilets, which quite literally is a shitty job. You know, to clean the eco-toilets is to pull out the, you know, the poop of all the people. And I'm thinking, if another person in the village knew, like was aware that uh, this needed to be done, they would just do it for him without even thinking. The if, if he asked one of the boys, hey, go do this, like the snap of his fingers, they would go do it. But he saw there was a need and he just did it. This is leadership that inspires people. The people that think they're above any sort of task, you're not going to inspire people. People are going to think, oh, you might be powerful. Oh, that person might be, you know, have some, some wisdom. But it's by doing, it's by with humility. This is what we learn from our indigenous elders because really they all have this. They'll sweep the floors, you know, they'll pick up trash, whatever is needed. They'll stay, <clears throat> stay the longest. They'll give the best beds or sleeping arrangements to their, you know, the, the lower people in the village. They'll sleep on the floor or hammock. You know, they'll let everyone eat. Real eaters eat last. My father used to tell me that real leaders eat last. So, you know, you see this and then trust people, you know, this was easy for me because it was like getting my hair cut. You know, I go get my hair cut. I don't know how to cut hair. This person went to school to cut hair. I tell them just, you know, make it shorter and make it look good. I never had a bad haircut, trusting the professional, you know? And so I have this philosophy also in work. Like if I'm going to hire someone to do uh, something, it's because they have a skill set that I don't. So I trust them. You know, I trust that their skill set is going to be um, especially used for this mission. They're going to put their heart into it, you know. They're going to do a good job. And um, so this is the way that... Uh, I feel we've been able to harmonize is really because we get to learn from these indigenous elders, how they lead, you know, and that's something I realized just this last time I was just in the rainforest uh, for five weeks uh, in February in the first week of March. <clears throat> um, my father was uh, chief justice, of the United States federal courts over 30 years. And I learned a lot from him. Very wise man very powerful man, a chief, a leader. But what I realized when I was there at Benke's uh, center, my dad actually came to me in a ceremony and he said, I want you to thank Benke for giving you something that I was not able to give you. And I said, what? He's like, well, we didn't have like, take your son to work day. So you didn't get to watch how I led. You saw me be a good father. You saw me like be a charitable man, you know, always made sandwiches for the poor, volunteered different places. You saw me be a good caretaker of the home. You saw me be a humorous family member. You didn't see how I led. 
And I thought about that because, you know, the way indigenous kids in these communities learn is that they just go and shadow their elders, right? And uh, we don't get to learn that way. We learn through books, you know? I mean, we still learn from watching, but we don't get to see our parents so much in their, uh, in their roles. You know, we don't get to learn leadership really uh, by observing. And I was like, wow. And so I told Benki this, you know, the next day my dad came to me and he was like, gave me a big smile. He's like, that's, that's exactly how we learn. We learn through observation. And so that's the gift that I've been given, Vivian and I, is that when we go to these communities, we have to observe how a humble leader leads. And it's through that observation that teaches us more than reading all the self-help books, you know, not to say they don't help. Those are great. You know, all these, all the literature and, and document documentaries, all these things are all amazing. But the fastest way is to just observe. Just to observe a leader in his environment and how he functions. And so I give thanks and a lot of gratitude to having that opportunity with many of these different elders to see, observe how they learn, uh, lead, because that, that's the way I can learn. I want to plant a seed with you, Rudy. My desire is to read a book about the management philosophy, the cultural building philosophy of these elders. So uh, I'm planning a seat with you that I think you had a very privileged position to actually write that book. Because I don't think any one elder is sufficient to, you know, you had that wide angle lens. You could see the inter-tribe dynamics and also the single tribe dynamic. Anyways, planting a seed. If you help me co-author, maybe we can do it. Totally. I'm happy to do it. <laughs> My superpower is asking powerful questions. I, I and, see that. That's why I'm asking. You ask the questions yeah. and I can go and we can work on it like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, one last segment I wanted to, to ask you, then we'll probably complete here. That, that question that opened up this segment is this. You hold a very important role of bridging the indigenous, the indigenous cultures to the Western world. And I think part of the, the way you articulate it, you said these are a group of people that have been dishonored and discarded by the Western world. So I'm, I think in many sense that's accurate. And your specific role in my, in my eyes is how do you make their way of living relevant? Such that when, because when people uh, can receive their way of think, uh, living, thinking, doing things, as valuable, then it's relevant, then they'll pour more resources into the Boa foundations, into the annual gatherings and so forth, right? So it's a very important mm -hmm. role to bridge that gap to, to, to make their way of thinking relevant. So how do you think about this role of, you know, uh, bridging their way of living to, and you know, uh, their, the, 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 the householders of the West, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Kind of like the monastic way of living and the householders? This is a very good question, CK. And uh, it is incredibly relevant because Vivian and I, uh, again, my, my mission partner here, have pondered this since the beginning. Because the answer is not to sell all your possessions and go live in a hut in the rainforest, right? Everyone can't do that. So what is the answer? And the answer is quite simple. 
It's a synthesis. It's a synthesis of the ancient and the modern. And you see in these indigenous villages, the ones that we support, they're synthesizing. Are they renouncing their beliefs and, uh, you know, running to a church, like a Christian church? No. Are they, um, you know, taking desk jobs, creating desk jobs in their computers? No. What are they doing though? They're welcoming solar power into the communities. They're welcoming eco showers, eco toilets, artesian wells, so their water can be purified. They're welcoming all this Western innovation that we've created, which is really good, you know, which is sustainable. They've welcomed guitars. Guitars were not part of their culture. You saw how well Iskunqua plays the guitar. That is a sign of peace on their behalf. There's a sign of forgiveness for the Western world. By adopting the good things that we've created, they're saying we reconcile the past energy of colonization with you. We forgive you and we accept the good things that you have created because Western society isn't all bad. We're not all bad. And for us Westerners, we have forgotten something that they've maintained, which is we forgot our sacred relationship with the elements, water, air, fire, earth. We forgot how to um, um, exalt our ancestors, how to pray to our ancestors, those that walked before us, those that struggled so that you and I might be here today and have the modicum of comfort that we do in this time. You know, we forgot, uh, you know, really largely how to live a spiritual life. And so we can take these downloads that we receive from them, this healing, this remembrance. And once we have those within us, our inspiration, our creation changes, you know? It's like, very simple for me. It's like uh, remembering what is sacred. And once you can recognize what is sacred and you remember what is sacred, then it becomes, um, how do you nurture and protect that which is sacred? Someone that has this understanding, that embodies this understanding, and again, it's a journey. It's not like all of a sudden you remember sacred and that's it. You know, I've been doing this, like I said, 11 years, and I feel like maybe I'm 5% understanding of sacred, you know, maybe less, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm there, I'm on the path, you know? So now the things that come out of me, my inspiration, my creation, my ideas, they have that embodiment of sacred in it. So I'm not thinking about creating things that separate society. I'm not thinking about things of creating things that distract society. I'm not thinking about creating things that create more inequality. I'm not thinking about things that create only personal wealth for myself, you know? So if we can take this remembrance from these indigenous that haven't forgot sacred, the things that will come through us, our ideas, our concepts, our inventions, our innovations, our politics will change. You know, our philosophy will change and it's all going to change for the better, but we need to 
synthesize this remembrance of sacred into our city lives. You know, Benki says you want to change the world, plant a tree. Simple. Everyone can plant a tree. Everyone can make a plant a plant. You know, even people live in, in you know, vertical places like New York. And, um, you know, start taking care of something like that, like a, having a connection to something that you're growing. That's a synthesis. And um, so I feel like that's the, the take home for all the city people is when we encounter these indigenous ways, the spirituality, to help us, to use this, to help us remember what is sacred. Yeah. You know. I want to plant another seed because one of the passing comments that you made is people come to ceremonies. They're inspired by the culture. They're inspired by the transmission of these elders. And oftentimes they go home and nothing happens, right? And mm -hmm. what you just share, in my mind, that's the bridge. Another book uh to tell them what are the micro steps that they can mm. take on going from confucius said means self-mastery family country world that's confucius teaching and in my mind it's very fractal so if you can give them actionable steps that they can take to protect the sacred to well actually first and foremost clarify what's sacred for them and then protect and nurture the sacred. Teach them these micro steps. In my mind, that would make the bridge of the indigenous cultural way of living to the modern, you know, householders how they can embrace the sacred. You know what I'm saying? In, indeed, I, I totally understand that. You know, the Mamos, the uh, Arawaku, uh, they live in the. Sierra Nevadas of Colombia, high, high up there. And the first time I went and visited them, they said, uh, you want to be spiritual? Sweep the floors. Wash your dishes. But when you're doing this, wash racism away from this planet. Mm. Sweep, sweep racism mm. off this planet. Everything is a prayer. Everything is sacred. I used to hate like uh, folding laundry, for instance, you know, I didn't mind putting it in, but it was then the folding and the socks. I said, okay, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to like organize, use it to like organize a prayer to organize um, the good things in life. So you start looking at these mundane tasks, everything can be a prayer. So when you wake up in the morning, you look at your bed and you're like, eh. I'm going to sleep in it again tonight. I'm not going to, I'm not going to fix it. No, you fix that with the prayer. You know, I'm, I'm organizing good things in this world so that, you know, good things can, can vibrate at a higher, more profound level. You know, when you're looking at the dishes, okay, well, I don't want to do them. It's like, no, clean the dishes. But like I said, you're cleaning racism off this planet, you know? And so, like, uh, this is very simple integration and these little things, these mundane tasks, which are not mundane. We only make them mundane. Yeah. And that's like, that's like, a, you know, as a, a, a 
Mexican peyote rota man says, when said to me, he's like, you got to flip the tortilla, man. It's like, you know, it's like we have it on one side, but all you need to do is flip it to the other side and reverse how you look at it, you know? And so it's like the thing, you look at these mundane tasks, you flip the tortilla to their side, now it's a prayer. Mm. It's anything but a mon- mundane task. It's all perception, mm. right? And intention. Mm. Speaking of, um, on the side of empowering the indigenous elders to share their stories, their culture with the rest of the world, one thing that is really clear to me as you know, I'm a householder what looking in is music, artifacts. These are very accessible ways to grasp, you know, um, this inspired idea of, you know, being part of the embracing the indigenous thought and philosophy. Um, I know that you had shared with me, they have modernized, you know, getting Wi-Fi and then doing more lives as a way to share their culture. The way, the more they share their culture in a way that's relevant to the Western world, the more people will care about them, right? So can you share a little bit about how they are using modern technologies and production techniques and music theories and things like that to really help them amplify their beautiful way of living, their beautiful way of creating music and art with the rest of the world? I mean, uh, this old Lakota chief said uh, it great to me. This is years and years ago. He says, I can't imagine if Crazy Horse had a cell phone (laughs) and he could like direct his troops by sending messages like that, you know? And um, you see these guys, you know, and most of our leaders are very careful how they adapt technology because they don't want to get lost in it. Mm-hmm. You know, so if there's Wi-Fi, the it's on at a certain point in time, but then it's, you know, it's off so that they're not just sitting there getting lost in TikTok or Instagram or something, um, or worse, you know. And, um, but here we are, you know, with this connection to the outside world, but they can share their message particularly during COVID when no one could travel to visit them and they couldn't travel out to visit anybody. It was like, here's their link to the outside world to show that they're still there, to show that they're okay, to show that they're, you know, um, still praying for us, still living as they did before to garner funds for them, you know, because the majority of the income is coming in through uh, either them hosting people or, you know, events when they go uh, on fundraising, you know, out fundraising. So very helpful, um, you know, to sell their art, something simple, man. Like when we first went to Ninoa's village, no electricity, no toilets, no well. I mean, the huts, most of them didn't even have sides. It was just a roof. And it's like when they got solar power, another woman could stay up past sundown to create art. So it's like it wasn't over just because the sun went down. This was a revelation. This mm. was a godsend. They could make so much more art because they have so many tasks that they need to complete during the day with cooking and cleaning and raising kids and all this stuff that, you know, now they get to do, uh, spend more time in something that is like more of a, a passion 
you know, more of a hobby, uh, a creative outlet such as making the beadwork and, you know, other woven things and whatever. I'm like, you know, that was solar power that gave them that opportunity. You know, I didn't even consider that until they're like, oh, we, we're so excited. We can do art. And then some of the other guys, well, and we can practice music later, you know. Because when we're learning a new song, we can't play that song in the dark. You know, we need to be able to see our fingers. Well, now we can practice later. Mm. And so, um, you know, these simple things like this, which, you know, I can say on, on my behalf, I, I often took for granted, uh, changes the quality of life um, tremendously for some of these uh, remote indigenous villages. Mm. And, um, yeah. And, um, you know, I think, um, slowly but surely there's more that are getting interested in film. You know, they see like professional crews and amateur photographers or filmmakers that come and go. And this is really important because you know, I, I encourage this strongly, but we want them to be able to share their own narrative instead mm. of uh, an observer of the culture from the outside. Because no matter how close we are, I'm still an observer mm. through the lens. Mm. With them, it is the culture, it is a view from inside the culture. So we've um, been part of programs which has, you know, brought people there who have given workshops on filmmaking and things like this. And you're starting to see more of an interest from them to document their own experience. I mean, mm. Iskukwa is a great, great example. The guy's got like 40,000 Instagram followers. You know, he's really taken this tool of Instagram and used it to amplify his message, you know, and um, he gives news, you know, from there about what's happening that you're not going to be able to read in any paper, even in a, in a Brazilian newspaper, he gives accurate news. He's sharing also, you know, funny stuff occasionally. So he's got humor. And then he's sharing wisdom uh, from his people, philosophy. And, um, you know, he's really a prime example of someone that's used social media to really create uh, a big presence and, a, and a, a strong voice for not just the Oromo people, but for indigenous people uh, in his state of Acre and for indigenous people everywhere, you know, he's harnessed that tool well. So, so let's double click on that for a bit. You know, you had mentioned him. Um, let's see, how do I articulate it? I want to say it in a way that's useful. Okay. So he has a mission. He's the chief of his people, 300 of his people, right? So he's not only the spiritual leader, but also the actual CEO basically, right, of the mm -hmm. of overlooking the infrastructures and everything. Um, do you believe that having media training or learning English, the universal language, so to speak, so then that way his message would be out more broadly to the world in a, in a way that's more effective and efficient? Yeah, this is why he's learning English, you know? Um, because he understands that this is going to open up many things, you know? So he's really taking this as a, as a big mission. And uh, I really appreciate about him because there's a lot of leaders 
from his state of Akri that have, you know, they're much older than him. They've been traveling much longer than him. And it's like, they just like English. They're like, eh, you know, we don't care so much, you know, but I appreciate about his school because he really saw how much this is going to open things up when he can articulate himself directly. Because with translation, you know, there's a pause. Sometimes people lose focus. I see it, you know, they just lose presence. Sometimes they get lost in the story, you know. So, yeah, I'm really um, pleased with the efforts that he's made. Um, and, you know, I, at this point, I even think he doesn't need a translator for most stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, just, so it's a mental barrier to actually speak. I think, yeah, because he understands. I've had meetings with him where I've spoke for 45 minutes to an hour, all in English. He understood everything, you know, no translation necessary. Mm. Um, mm. So now it's just like, I think, like, be more comfortable. You know how it is. Uh, yeah, I'm an immigrant, so I English. totally get it. There, there is yeah. a leap of faith one you should take and just just jump and start speaking kind of a thing. So, yeah. yeah, I've, I'm in that place with Portuguese where it's like, I understand a lot and it's just like, I want to use a translator all the time instead of like, I want to be kind of like, yeah, shy about it, you know, so yeah. lazy, if you will, sometimes, you know, does that courage actually, so let's double click on that. Does the courage of sitting in medicine really staring into your own shadows, does that translate to, um, linguistic, you know, skill acquisition? I would say yes. Okay. I would say yes. Because, okay. um, you know, my, my, my mission partner, Vivian, she's Brazilian, mm. but she lived 10 years in London. So she learned how to speak and she was a, a model and an actress. So she spoke mm. perfect English. It was mm -hmm. her profession. Mm. Obviously she speaks Portuguese. She also spoke French, Spanish, and Italian for that matter. Wow. So I had the bad, she's probably one of the top translators in the world. I mean, she's mm. crystal, crystal clear mm. and ex ex precise. Mm. So I'm always with her and I like to be precise with my words in English. So I use her because I know that she can relay the message precisely. Mm -mm. And um, I'm spending three months a year in Brazil, you know, mm. hearing Portuguese, plus having these guys on tour for another two months. It's like I'm around Portuguese speakers five months of the year and mm. I'm not speaking. Mm. Once I really, this coincided with me really feeling like that my spirit was fully in my body again. It's like all of a sudden I just start speaking Portuguese. Mm. Like I had been absorbing so much without the confidence to like put it to use. Now, was I speaking fluently conversationally? No. Could I handle conversations, simple conversations? Absolutely. So I do think it correlates to be honest with you. I really mm. do. Mm. Mm. Obviously, you need time to, to learn and practice, but yeah, you know, as in any skill acquisitions, uh, as any, it requires a uh, courage, right? That warrior spirit to just, just, just leap. Yeah. Rudy, I really, really appreciate our conversation, my friend. Uh, let me just take a moment to just acknowledge you sharing your story, your mission to bridge the indigenous culture in this Western world, 
I think at a time today, especially the our mind is so um, mired with chaotic thoughts, internal and external. Right, navigate the internal space of addiction to inner freedom and the external world of external chaos, and not to get mired with fear. Actually, and do the part that we can from self mastery, family, country, world. The the methodologies, the practices, the wisdom that you gather uh, from the indigenous elders is so.、Um, Much needed today. So thank you so much for leaning in into your warrior spirit, and then creating a platform like Anawa and the Boa Foundation to really、um, provide massive value, timeless value to、um, the Western world. Thank you so much for the work that you do. House, house, brother. I enjoyed myself very much、uh, and appreciated. Uh, your line of questioning as well. Like I said, there's been some questions I hadn't thought about, which gives me some stuff to think about going forward as well.、Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you for this opportunity to share a little bit about、uh, about the mission we have here at Aniwa and the Boa Foundation. And I know we'll see you、um, in the future at some of our other events. And、uh, yeah, to everyone that took the time to listen, just many blessings. Thank you. So guys,、um, go out to anywat.co and check out the next anywat gathering. As he said, this is the Rainbow Warrior Bootcamp in Boa Foundation. Should you feel so inspired to、um, you know, provide、uh, your assistance to the cause? Until the next time, thanks for listening.